This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to AOA today here on this Thursday. I have wrapped up at Corn Congress in Washington, D.C. Those corn growers are still working, debating, discussing that policy that they'll be bringing out here over the next year. But I have left Washington, but we are still going to be talking about issues that impact agriculture that originate in Washington, D.C. In fact, in segment three of today's show, we're going to catch up with Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. He has been working very hard and USDA has been working hard to increase processing capacity in the meat space. He'll give us an update on that in segment three. And in segment two, we are going to talk with Nathan Danielson. He's the principal at a firm called Biocognito, and he works to link investors with folks who are doing cutting edge technology research in agriculture specifically as it relates to new uses for the crops that we grow here on our ground. So we'll talk about the the changes he sees coming from the West Coast and working with that style of tech entrepreneur and then the way they want to engage here with Midwestern Agricultural. Nathan will bring us that update. And uh, we hopefully are going to be talking about some changes developing at the Swine Health Information Center here in just a little bit with their assistant director, Dr. Megan Niederwerder. While we're uh, waiting on uh, Dr. Niederwerder here, I did want to give an update. We do have a couple of other broad economic pieces of news that are hitting us today. First and foremost, follow up to that inflation number from yesterday. U.S. producer prices were released today. This is a measure of wholesale and business prices. So this is anything that we're not buying as consumers, but you might be buying as a business owner would be considered a producer prices. We're tacking inputs that go into the final projects. And producer price index jumped a lot in the month of June. It was up 11.3% June to June, year over year, and it's up 1.1% looking for May into June. This All this data comes out of the Labor Department, and it's worth noting that three-fourths of the advance this past month, three-quarters of that 1.1%, was due to the cost of goods particularly, and they emphasize this repeatedly, particularly energy. Folks, that's no surprise to a lot of us who have been talking in these commodity markets for some time. We have seen tremendous volatility in the energy market space, and that volatility, in fact, is continuing today. Taking a look at crude oil prices, we are seeing volatility to the downside, which uh, yeah, might be welcome volatility, volatility for a lot of the folks tuning in right now. We've got West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil August contract down $4.5 trading right now, just above $90 actually trading. Well, it just touched $92. And uh, we're seeing that that drop play out throughout the commodity complex. Notably today, again, it's because the dollar is much higher. We are seeing tremendous dollar strength. Once again, this has been a theme we've been talking about on this show all week long. Began with Arlen Suderman on Monday's episode. The rise in the value of the U.S. dollar creates a serious headwind for commodity prices, particularly commodities that we produce here in this country, uh, because we are trying to sell those commodities out into the countryside. And uh, as our the value of the dollar goes up, it makes us more expensive to purchase our goods in currencies that originate in other countries. So while we continue to see this inflation stick with us, as countries around the world aren't addressing it, and perhaps with the same speed and ferocity that the U.S. Federal Reserve is, conversations now taking place that in the July meeting, we could see the Federal Reserve be considering a full percentage point increase in the federal funds rate. Remember, they caused quite a stir here just recently when they raised the, uh, the federal funds rate 75 basis points. So this would be 100 basis points. It would be an additional full percentage point point increase currently under discussion at the Federal Reserve. Now, the good news, I think, from an ag perspective is despite this strongly higher dollar, and when I say strongly, we are up 
100, 112 basis points today in the grain in the dollar index, and we are seeing that uh, not slow down the grain market. Corn up 11 to 12 cents. We do see some weakness in beans, and we're seeing some weakness, excuse me, some strength in the wheat market carry forward as well. Well, Dr. Megan Niederwerder is with us here today. Dr. Niederwerder, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I am fantastic. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And Dr. Nader, let's talk about how Schick, the Swine Health Information Center, is changing its focus here in 2022, or at least adding a new area of focus. What are you going to be researching? Yes, we have made adjustments in the 2022 budget to include a research focus on finishing phase biosecurity, including bioexclusion, biocontainment, as well as transport biosecurity. And this is going to include a $1 million research program that encourages research proposals to be submitted to develop new technologies and innovate new discoveries in the area of biosecurity at the finishing phase. Does security biosecurity at a finisher need to look different than biosecurity at a farrowing unit or perhaps at a nursery? Well, what we're seeing is that the sow and breeding farm biosecurity has been implemented at a higher level than what we're seeing at the grow finish phase. And so some of the research and data that has been generated recently through the swine disease reporting system, as well as our rapid response program, has identified a vulnerability at the growth finish phase in that we're often seeing disease outbreaks such as PERS and PEDV increase in the growth finish phase prior to increases of those same viruses at the sow and breeding farm. And so what we're seeing is that this vulnerability at the grow finish phase is increasing our overall disease pressure for the industry and spills over into the sow and breeding farm phases as well. Absolutely. Those diseases, once they build up a critical mass in the system, it makes sense. They'd go both ways. Megan, where do you anticipate the first brushes of this research to attack on the biosecurity front? Where do you see the apparent weaknesses? Yeah, so one of the areas, so when we talk about bioexclusion, we talk about preventing any disease from entering. So that would be aspects of your site-specific biosecurity. So thinking about site-specific clothing, site-specific equipment, visitor logs, uh, looking at making sure that uh, your loadout procedures include this aspect of biosecurity so that there is no vulnerability or weakness when you move pigs. We also think about biocontainment. So if there is an introduction of a pathogen, how do we contain that within a single site? We've talked about are there areas of, let's say, air filtration for the exhaust air? Can we use ionization or UV light to inactivate pathogens in the exhaust air? And then we've talked about transport biosecurity. So are there alternative methods or ways that we can actually inactivate pathogens on vehicles again to prevent those transport vehicles from being a source into new sites and new farms. Absolutely. It's crucial to keep those diseases at bay. Swine Health Information Center, swinehealth.org, doing that fantastic work. Thanks to Dr. Megan Niederwarder. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking. Now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. 
If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives together. The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. This past week in Washington, D.C., a lot of corn growers got together for their action team meetings in Corn Congress, and they heard from a number of different presenters about issues that matter to corn growers. One of the folks they heard talk was Nathan Danielson. He's a principal at Biocognito, and he was speaking about some of the changes that could be coming in new uses for corn and other renewables. He joins us here today. Nathan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Well, Mike, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Before we jump into what you addressed with the corn growers in D.C., Tell us a little bit about Biocognito. What is it you do? Yeah, so Biocognito is what happens when you lose your job at DuPont. Um, So basically, you know, I... uh DuPont offered me to see new opportunities, and I'd been working with the corn growers previously, and I was always really impressed with all of the potential for agriculture to solve many of the problems we have today, which I think we'll talk about uh, soon. But I was out on the coast, and so, you know, many of the people that I was going out and talking to as, you know, potential clients for new opportunities in the renewable material space, they had no idea of how to take their technology to find places to scale it up, to find feedstock that's both, um, you know, sustainable, um, actually I shouldn't say both sustainable, economic, and abundant. And I'm like, you know, why why is there this disconnect? And it's, it's funny because, you know, we kind of forget that when people don't communicate enough, you know, there's some assumptions that, that tend to get in place. So I would start bringing my clients out to the Midwest and they're like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. We didn't know all this technology was out here. We didn't know all these feedstocks were out here. We didn't know all this opportunity to scale up and, and reach the marketplace. And so since, you know, and this has been six years that I've been doing this, we've had a number of companies come out work with Midwestern companies. We've got companies that are now, you know, working towards that commercialization, that ever elusive commercialization. But, and, and I think it's been really benefited by being able to kind of span both worlds. On the other side of this, I help states put in policies in place to incentivize. So Nebraska has a biotech incentive. Um, 
Illinois is working towards a biotech incentive. I didn't work on the one in Iowa, but Iowa's got one, as does Minnesota. So, you know, I think what's happening is these Midwestern states are saying, we're gonna produce more and more corn. We're really interested about having expanded markets for that. And it's not just corn, you know, it's soy, it's all sorts of different feedstocks. And so I think it's gonna really benefit rural economies because that's where you're gonna produce these renewables. It is, and so it's interesting to see you bridging that gap between the demand for this type of thing coming from the coats and the production of it here in the Midwest. I wanna start first with the practical, what's the exciting innovation? And I heard a lot this past week, Nathan, about sustainable aviation fluid or fuel. There is a ton of, of excitement about this. Can you tell us what is sustainable aviation f- fuel? Yeah, it, so it's kerosene, you know, and I think this is the one thing we always, uh, when I, I try to talk to about things is, you know, try to get through some of the uh, jargon down to what we're trying to make. We're trying to make kerosene from renewables. So, you know, when you go to an airfield and you smell that kerosene smell or you're camping, that's what we're trying to make. It becomes interesting because when you think about different markets or different where, where fuel is used, there are some markets that are very hard to decarbonize. You know, if you look at what's happening in, in perhaps light duty fuels, we can electrify some of that. It's just going to be very, very difficult to ever electrify uh, a jet. And so the idea behind sustainable aviation fuels is let's take and decarbonize that sector of our fuel pool through using renewables. And so that's been really exciting to to begin to think about. And it's a big market. It's a big market. And Nathan, we've heard a lot of announcements, carriers announcing they're going to switch to X number million gallons of sustainable aviation fluid fuel. But I'm curious, is it there? I mean, do we have the the renewable kerosene quite yet? No, we don't quite yet. We certainly have the technologies to get there. And it is, you know, the people that are going to probably be the first to supply this market will be the soybean and the oil seed groups. Um, that's an easier, an easier technological pathway. But right now, the way that the policies are set up is that renewable diesel, which is basically a heavier fuel, so gasoline's light, SAF sits in the middle for, you know, heaviness, and then you've got your um, your diesels. Right now, there's a really good um, economic reason to produce renewable diesel. I think one of the things that the growers need to consider is, you know, what, what policies do we want to put in place that will uh, support SAF in the U.S.? Now, I should say, in Europe, there's already policies in place for this. So, you know, this isn't, um, there, there's definitely a pathway there. We, we produce about 3 million gallons of SAF today, and we need to produce more like 37 billion gallons. And is the hang up in increasing that production, is it policy or is it technology at this stage in the game? Yes. Okay. It's, it's the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. So, you know, the, the technology for, for uh, oil seeds is really pretty well developed. So I would say that, you know, that technology um, is all available. It's, it's deployed at full scale. So um, th- that one's policy. I think for... SAF from ethanol, SAF from wood waste, SAF from other things are, you know, they're kind of stair steps. I I would say um, optimistically we could begin to produce SAF from ethanol in the three to four year time frame. You know, SAF from sugars, so direct from sugars, I'm thinking that I'm thinking that that's seven to ten years, maybe five to seven years. But we're going to need all feedstocks, you know, if we just throw out a number, if we were just to convert ethanol to SAF, we would need 60 billion gallons of ethanol. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to need all feedstocks. And so this is why, you know, we, we need to be very clear that this is an opportunity for all rural communities that have feedstock. This is really a, a tremendous opportunity for agriculture. And it's interesting. I mean, SAF is one of those future avenues. Nathan, I know you've also been working on the National Incentive for Biotech, which would look for an even bigger uh, potential future uses for corn. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny. We were at a restaurant last night and uh, we got these straws that were made out of PHB. So this is polyhydroxybutanate. And, and you can make this today. You could make this from, from sugars. They we were actually making it from methane of all things. That product would be supported through this program. You know, now it's the methane's probably going to be from a, an anaerobic digester at a dairy, right? So that's a way for the dairy people to participate. And you know, think about that. We're taking something that was formerly a, a really 
significant greenhouse gas, and we're converting it into a plastic that will be biodegradable in your backyard. So I'm not a chemist. I'm a liberal arts guy, Nathan. So bear with me. We're going to take the methane from a digester, the gas that is being discharged as this manure breaks down and convert it into a plastic. And it is biotech. Yeah, it sounds magic, doesn't it? It does sound magic, but it's real and it's happening today. And we could see this continue to play out. How does this national incentive encourage it? Right. So this is, you know, uh, always, you know, knocking off an incumbent is difficult. You know, getting into a a new market is difficult. And especially right now, you know, many of my clients are out there trying to, they're trying to raise venture capital and the venture capitalists are nervous as we're looking at a uh, recession. So one of the things I think this does is this lowers that risk. It doesn't take it away completely. We want to make sure that people are making good business decisions, but this, is just a way to shorten that commercialization cycle a little bit or shorten that investment cycle a little bit by having some somewhat of a safety net while you drop down your cost curve. And that's really, I think that's the important thing that, you know, we, we really need to get across to, you know, to representatives, to people that are saying, hey, what are you doing with my taxes? This is not meant to be a long-term, you know, charity for businesses. This is really meant to be a way to get new technologies into the markets, give consumers more choices, give rural economies more opportunities to diversify all of the stuff we'd want. And then it's like, you need to, you need to stand on your own. So how does it work? Is it a grant-based uh, program? Yeah. So it's actually got three components. So one component that we're hoping now we don't want to be overly prescriptive because we realize that when it gets in front of uh, representatives, they're going to want to be able to they're going to want to be able to put their own um, stamp on it. But we'd like to have a capital offset. So this would be, you know, if you're putting in a new plant or you're putting in new equipment for a plant, you'll get some amount of money to help offset that cost. Um, We think that that encourages smaller companies that may not have a tax liability. On the other hand, we'd like to have a production credit. So this would be a per pound, some kind, some number of cents per pound um, uh, incentive. And what this allows is if you're a large company and you're like, do I want to go over and make a sustainable product? You know, maybe this is what tips you there because you have a tax liability and you can take this this tax credit off on your liability. Um, so those are those are the two mechanisms that we're thinking that w- we'd like to use to to bring this uh, to make this more appealing to a, a broader swath of uh, potential innovative companies. And I think it's important to mention it's not just corn. This would apply to any renewable source just to bring more of those dollars and that value add back to rural America. Absolutely. So you know we want to. We want to make sure that it's feedstock agnostic. We think that the market's going to sort those types of things out. And we also believe that, you know, the most economically viable feedstock early on will probably end up having prices go up a little bit as it gets pulled into the marketplace, which is going to open up opportunities for other feedstocks. So Nathan Danielson, principal at Biocognito. Thanks for joining us, for bringing us up to speed. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up next. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations have reached a preliminary agreement to allow exports of Ukrainian grain from three ports, according to officials close to the talks, although one person familiar with the negotiation stated that it's too early to say that an agreement is imminent. The Russian delegation reportedly has not yet received approval from President Biden. 
The tentative agreement would allow for mines to be removed from the ports, including the main port of Odessa. Grain ships traveling to Ukraine ports would be inspected by Turkish officials to certify that they were not carrying military assistance. The ships would then be loaded with grain and then escorted to safety by Ukrainian vessels with a ceasefire to protect the vessels as they move to safer waters. A couple of questions about that, though, is can Russia be trusted not to sweep in and take possession of those ports once the mines are cleared? And the second question, of course, will be who will provide insurance to these ships and at what cost? Now, driving the uh, grain and oilseed markets here in the U.S., weather does seem to remain the single biggest fundamental factor for the next couple of weeks, although it may not look like a weather market at times due to volatility in all the other outside markets. The outlook does remain very hot for the plains over the next two weeks. With that heat periodically pulsating east across the Midwest, rainfall will be limited to cluster storms riding down the backside of that ridge. The placement of these storms will be critical for crops, but difficult to forecast. And this pattern could hold into mid-August. Let's get a look at those commodity numbers. July corn up six and a half at seven forty-six and a half. July beans down twenty-six and a half at fifteen sixty-one and three quarters. Wheat Chicago July down three and a quarter at seven ninety-eight and a quarter. Kansas City July down five and a half at eight sixty-seven and a quarter. And that July Minneapolis wheat that is down three and a half at eight eighty-nine and three quarters. Live cattle August down eighty-five at one thirty-six oh two. Feeders August down one sixty-five at one seventy-nine fifteen. And the July lean hogs they are up twenty-two at one fourteen seventy-two. Well, the Dow right now is off more than 600 points. The dollar is sitting at 109.0, and crude oil is trading down almost $5 at just under $92 a barrel. This is AOA. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making us a part of your day. You know, we've been talking a lot from Washington, D.C. here this week, and that's going to continue right now. Had the opportunity to catch up with Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us here on AOA. The past two years have seen a lot of focus on the beef industry and meat processing in particular. And I know USDA has made some commitments to improving that processing capacity. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's gone here over the past two years from USDA's perspective? Sure. We're making progress and there's still more progress to be made. Uh, we've already been able to provide grants to 167 small and mid-sized independent processing facilities allowing them to expand their market uh, opportunity beyond uh, uh, what they can do within their own states uh, across state lines. So there's an expansion of market opportunity. There's another $23 million of grant uh, resources available in that program. So we anticipate and expect adding to that number of 167 plants. Several thousand plants have also received the benefit uh, of reduced inspection fees, which has made it a little bit easier for those small plants that saw them uh, having to deal with overtime uh, issues uh, because of COVID and because of the disruption of the supply chain, uh, now in a position to be, to be more financially stable as a result uh, of that assistance. We've also focused on the mid uh, supply chain uh, needs, more warehousing, more cold storage. Uh, we set up a loan guarantee program, which we think over time will probably uh, provide anywhere from $1.1 to $1.4 billion of loan guarantees. We've already seen uh, a quarter of a billion dollars of loan guarantees issued uh, as a result of this program for expanded uh, warehousing and cold storage, which I think is a positive. We have $150 million of grant money uh, that we put on the on the table, if you will, for expanded or new 
processing capacity. We're excited about the reaction we got from uh, the market. Uh, over 300 applications, uh, $380 million, million dollars of requests, uh, which would result in $1.8 billion of projects. So obviously there's a need and a demand for additional support and help. Excited about making those decisions here very, sh- very soon. And then adding to that $150 million, another $225 million uh, of grant resources. And finally, we set up a loan, uh, revolving loan fund. Uh, you know, the reality is as we uh, set up more independent small processing uh, facilities, they may go through rocky uh, patches from time to time. They need, may need a bridge uh, loan to get to the next uh, uh, more prosperous time. We've set up a series of loan, uh, revolving loan funds that will help them uh, access that credit, about $275 million available in that program. So a lot of activity going on. We're excited about uh, what, what, what we're being able to do and what we're seeing. And I think you're going to see in the next six months a, a number of decisions being made. And Mr. Secretary, you mentioned those reduced inspection fees to help get more of those small and medium-sized uh, processing facilities to utilize USDA inspections. H- has that caused any labor issues from USDA's side, staffing enough inspectors and being able to keep up with the demand that's out there in the countryside? We've been fortunate uh, that, that that hasn't been an issue. Uh, you know, obviously, we, we are continuing to look for ways in which we can provide help and assistance, part of what we are doing uh, as part of this effort to expand processing is actually focusing on workforce development. We've uh, announced recently about $40 million worth of grants uh, that will be available to community colleges, technical colleges, land-grant universities, minority-serving institutions, and others to be able to train that workforce of the future. Uh, So we are investing in workforce. We're investing in technical assistance uh, for those who are are interested in providing uh, an application for a grant. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for all those in the supply chain on the meat and poultry side uh, to be able to access the help that they need. And frankly, uh, it's not just meat and poultry. Uh, We have about $600 million that we've set aside uh, uh, to assist and help in creating non uh, meat and poultry processing uh, capacity expansion as well. So more to do, obviously, uh, as we attempt to strengthen uh, the supply chain and as we t- attempt to really support local and regional food systems throughout the United States. Mr. Secretary, I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the funding sources for these dollars. I know a lot of money came USDA's way through the American Rescue Plan, the COVID relief efforts. How much of this processing capacity expansion money is COVID dollars and how much will be consistent and reaffirmed, do you think, longer term? Well, most of what I've talked about in terms of the processing resources is, in fact, coming from uh, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, The American Rescue Plan, Section 1001, uh, had roughly three, three to four billion dollars of assistance and help designed to provide resources to allow us to strengthen uh, the supply chain, to strengthen the, the local and regional food system. So the vast, vast majority of what I've talked about is coming from American Rescue Plan. There are some resources coming from uh, the regular budget of, of USDA as well but most of it's coming from the uh, rescue plan. With that being the case, Mr. Secretary, I wonder about that workforce development component. Uh, Certainly this is a concern we hear from folks throughout the supply chain, the labor issues, and they're kind of sticky. Do you see that component being able to survive long-term and help continue this training process? Well, I think we have the resources to really make a difference. But having said that, I think that the the real challenge from a labor perspective really is not so much the financing of workforce development, it's actually bodies, it's actually people. Uh, and I think that gets us back into a conversation about immigration, that gets us back into a, a, a discussion about the Farm Worker Modernization Act, which is currently sitting in the Senate, and which really does require action by the Senate. The House passed it in a bipartisan way, strong bipartisan vote. Uh, it, it requires 60 senators uh, to see the wisdom of trying to uh, assist agriculture in maintaining uh, workforce. You know, we've decided at USDA that uh, uh, we'd like to see that legislation passed, but in the meantime, uh, we have allocated uh, roughly $65 million. The president announced this during the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles uh, several weeks ago uh, of a pilot project where we're going to try to identify folks uh, from uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, from the Northern Triangle that would be interested in potentially being agricultural workers here in the U.S., uh, we would essentially work with a uh, an organization that would train those individuals 
Uh, we would work with the Department of uh, Homeland Security to uh, secure the necessary visas and permission for those folks to come into the country. And uh, it, we would then make those folks available uh, to producers that were interested in, in uh, caring for and, and needing uh, ag workers. So we're trying to essentially model what the uh, Farm Worker Modernization Act would in fact do so that uh, hopefully the, the folks in the Senate would become more comfortable with getting that passed as quickly as possible. Now, that is a very interesting program. Mr. Secretary, do you have an idea on timeline for getting that up and running and how long the pilot might run for? Well, we're asking uh, 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 several organizations to submit uh, a structure or proposal, uh, and we're, they're in the process of doing that. I would expect and anticipate uh, that we'll see something from them in the next month or two uh, in terms of the structure, uh, and then it will be a matter of allocating the resources. Uh, as I say, we've identified the resources, uh, roughly $65 million, and our, our belief is that this could potentially result in uh, uh, several thousand workers being identified uh, and trained and come into the United States. It's, it's a small step uh, to try to meet the demand that is out there, but I think it is indicative of a USDA that's interested in ha- trying to help solve problems while we wait for Congress to do its job. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch that program, see how it develops out there in the countryside. And I was wondering if we could circle back just briefly to the programs that or the the projects that were funded, those 167 small and mid-sized processors. What what would be an example of a small and mid-sized processor? Would this be like a local locker expanding their capacity? Uh, It might be a local locker, but it's probably a a processing facility that's doing a couple hundred head or maybe three, four hundred head. Uh, that uh, that is selling uh, a value-added proposition, locally produced, um, you know, steaks or chops or whatever, uh, selling to a, a local restaurant or a local uh, grocery store that decides that uh, they uh, have an opportunity perhaps to go across state lines. To do that requires a, a, an inspection system that's consistent and equal to and, and the same as the federal inspection system that could cost additional resources. Uh, and so this grant program basically provides the resources to make that conversion and transition that allows folks to expand the market. And, you know, it's interesting that selling local proposition gathered a lot of steam here post coronavirus. And as you look at the, the surroundings of the world in which this has evolved, is there more the USDA can do to encourage folks to buy directly from farmers, work with their local lockers? Is there licensing or inspecting that you'd like to see change to encourage that to grow? Well, it's not just uh, it's not just COVID. Uh, it's also the conflict uh, in Ukraine that has disrupted supply chains. It's also climate change that can be a long-term disruptor. Uh, it's important for us to have a local and regional food system, and I think the market demand is out there. I think people are aware uh, and are looking for opportunities. That's why we continue to have uh, what we refer to as the uh, local agricultural marketing program (LAMP). Uh, we provided additional resources uh, in that program as well. Uh, to encourage more marketing, more uh, awareness of farmers' markets, more awareness of value-added opportunities that, that uh, producers can participate in uh, to, that will allow them to, to be part of that local and regional food system. We're also investing in what is called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative. There are many areas in the country today in, in urban centers and in remote rural areas that lack uh, full-scale grocery stores and things of that nature, and this resource is designed to try to begin addressing uh, the reduction and ultimately, uh, with additional resources, the elimination of food deserts. And part of that can be uh, providing access to, uh, to to local and regional uh, uh, production. And finally, we've been using the federal procurement uh, capacity. Uh, that is to say, the federal government buys a lot of food. Uh, we buy food for food banks. We buy food for school meal programs. And as part of that program, we begin to we have begun to direct a portion of those resources to support local and regional producers, requiring uh, states to work and to identify local uh, producer groups uh, that will be able to purchase and have a contract uh, for the sale of, of, of product uh, into a food bank or into a school meal. So all of this is designed to strengthen, uh, create a greater, more resilience in our system. Uh, and provide more opportunities for small and mid-sized operators. It sounds like you've got a busy summer ahead of you, Secretary Vilsack. Thank you for taking the time to join us here on AOA. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, 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 we are are the the foundation foundation fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, Larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. 
When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Appreciate uh, being made a part of your day. You know, earlier this week when I was in D.C. working with my friends at the National Corn Growers Association, I was amazed at the impact growers can have in an individual level when they go up on Capitol Hill and talk to their legislators. Or perhaps they get the opportunity to go over to EPA, visit with regulators in person and present their case. It makes a world of difference. But unfortunately, farmers need to farm. You can't be in D.C. full time. You can't be monitoring the media environment around agriculture globally, so sometimes it's nice to have other folks who can pick up the ball and run with it on those issues. And I wanted to talk with an expert about that very issue, someone who's planning ahead to address communication in Washington, D.C. here around this next election. Joining me now is Julie Bussey. She's the Director of Communications at the National Corn Growers Association, and it's kind of a rarity to get Julie on the mic. I'm excited to have her here because we're we're going to open the hood and we're going to look at communication in Washington, D.C. Julie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for being uh, or thanks for having me with you, Mike. And I have to say, as I was joking before we came on air, any good communications person is never the one in the hot seat. We always find someone else to do it. So it's a rarity and it's fun. And it kind of brings back the good old days when I was in broadcasting. So thank you. I was going to say, you seem pretty at home there behind <laughs> that microphone, Julie. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Getting behind the microphone, so to speak, as you're presenting presenting ethanol and corn topics here in Washington, D.C., there's been a lot of turnover in yep. Congress. What does that mean from a, a structural perspective as somebody who talks about issues? How has that changed communication? Yeah, I mean, from a communication standpoint, we know that we can't just walk into a congressional office and hit them with our key priorities. Like, obviously, from an ethanol perspective, we're looking at the Next Gen Fuels Act and what we can do to increase higher blends, E15 year round. Those are things our members and we're very passionate about. But when you walk into a, a, a meet with a staff person from a member of Congress, they may not even know some of the basic benefits of using ethanol. So those are the kinds of things that we're going to be focusing on here over the next uh, pre and post election, kind of look at it that way. So we have a, a game plan for now through November and then what we're going to do from January on. Julie, you said something very interesting there, and it's something that I think a lot of us who live out in flyover country maybe don't <laughs> think about all that often, but a lot of these offices, congressmen, senators, all these folks, they're, they're staff kind of runs things, you're communicating yeah. with, with young, fairly fresh out of college graduates, aren't you? Yeah, I'll be honest. It was sort of a wake-up call for me. Washington, D.C. is not a market that I traditionally work with. I work with folks like you out in farm country, as you mentioned. And so, you know, in my head, I thought, let's hit D.C. with as many tools and tips and tricks that we can when in reality, sometimes it's just doing some simple things like newsletters for them or, you know, little news clips that they can pick from um, and, and use to help make the decisions and inform their bosses. As you're thinking about messaging to this crowd, an audience that's maybe unfamiliar with biofuels or perhaps with, with agriculture more broadly, what are some of the key terms or phrases or ideas that help stick? So we actually did some uh, morning consult polling recently with the what's considered the DC elite audience. So think those staffers, we were targeting uh, folks in the Ag Committee, folks in the Energy Department, um, just to kind of get a feel for what are the things that we need to be messaging here moving forward. And there are two key messages that really came to light right now. Um, obviously, as you can imagine, price at the pump. Being able to talk about how ethanol saves consumers money at the, at the pump is one of the key messages that we need to focus on right now. The other thing is environment. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that folks maybe aren't aware of. There's a recent one last year from Harvard where ethanol actually reduces greenhouse gas emissions by 46%. So those are some of the key messages right now that we know, especially pre-election, we need to focus on. 
How do you plan on getting those talking points in front of the decision makers, Julie? Well, so it's kind of a, a I guess I'd say two-pronged approach. So a lot of what we do is is what supports our folks, our farmers, when they're going to Capitol Hill, giving them and arming them with the key messages when they're meeting with their members of Congress um, to talk about these things. But right now, uh, we know it is a very tough media environment now through November. And it's very hard to break through with our messaging because everybody has something that is important to them and that they're passionate about. So we're really going to focus um, now through November, <clears throat> excuse me, on more of an earned media um, type of campaign and perspective. So working with some of the larger uh, entities that we normally don't get to work with and seeing if we can't get our folks in front of them to be on uh, some of these networks and channels that we're not normally on. With gas prices being what they are, Julie, this seems like a time where the agricultural influence, the biofuels input might be welcomed by some of these other media companies. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that we've heard uh, recently from the administration is if you're on Twitter, you're probably seeing people taking pictures of prices at the pump. They want to keep seeing that because that is ammunition for them and helps them to even say, look, this is why ethanol is the right choice. And this is why we need to continue to look at blending more ethanol in the nation's fuel supply. So if we've got listeners and they're at a gas station and they see that the price of ethanol is substantially or even just below the regular unleaded price, then I'll take a picture yep. and get it out there. Post it and tag us. Tag us on Twitter at National Corn. I can't say that enough because those are things that we can amplify and we can show um, folks in the administration and in Congress like, hey, people out in the countryside or just rural America, general public are taking advantage of ethanol's um, price impact. That's fantastic. Julie, before we let you go, we'll let you take off the microphone. <laughs> Tell us, you mentioned at National Corn on mm -hmm. Twitter's where they should be tagging you. Where else can find folks find information from National Corn? Obviously, um, on Facebook and Instagram, we're at Corn Growers. And then NCGA.com is where you can find uh, the most up-to-date information on our policy priorities and just general things that we're working uh, from a market development standpoint. Fantastic, folks. That's Julie Bussey. She is the Director of Communication at the National Corn Growers Association. And Julie, thanks for talking to us this week. Thanks for uh, letting me enjoy my passion. That was Julie Bussey. And it's so great to see these conversations being pushed to that next level in Washington, D.C. The shakeups that she mentioned on Capitol Hill truly are worth noting. When we see these, these upsets in elections and new faces come in, well, those are all new folks who might need to be educated about the advantages that agriculture brings to the table. And that's what we like to talk about here on AOA. We'll be talking ticks tomorrow with Chase DeCoyt of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Asian Longhorn Tick is causing trouble, folks. Do be sure to tune in tomorrow. We'll be right back here with more AOA. Thanks for listening and have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well... The answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222.